Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies. I'm Brian Hamilton, your host today, and I'm joined by Chad Montry, professor of history at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, and author of four books, including a brand new one, The Myth of Silent Spring, Rethinking the Origins of American Environmentalism. It was published a few weeks ago by the University of California Press. Chad Montry, welcome to the show. Hi, Brian. Thanks. Uh, Chad, you've been unquestionably one of the scholars at the forefront of bringing social history and labor history into the study of the history of environmental thought and environmental politics in the United States. So I hope we could begin with you maybe historicizing yourself a bit. And uh, I'd love to learn what led you to pursue a career as an academic historian and how you came to the research interests and, can I say, moral commitments that are really on display in all of your work? Yeah, sure. I think, though, probably that background before I realized I want to become an historian probably explains a lot about the kind of work that I did do. Sure. Um, when I was, by the time I was a teenager, I was doing um, a lot of social activism and mostly interested in, in that uh, as much as school. Um, and at that point, the anti-apartheid movement was still going on. So that was mm-hmm. the thing that kind of drew me in uh, first. And I got sort of immersed in that um, locally in, in Louisville, where I was growing up. Uh, and from there, I, I uh, met people that are part of the Socialist Workers Party, and so I joined uh, the SWP, or actually within the youth part of that, the YSA, the Youth Socialist Alliance. Um, and that really sort of gave me, um, I think, sort of the, a foundation for how to understand uh, different social problems in the United States, but also in, in, with an international perspective, which is something that, that the SWP is sort of known for. Um, and I'm not you know, I didn't stay in the SWP very long, but it really, I think, kind of uh, framed um, sort of a lot of my own thinking and is still sort of with, with sort of, you know, in part of my perspective today. I went to college uh, around the same time and I ended up at the University of Louisville and I studied with um, John Cumbler, who's probably somebody other people might be reading my book would, would be familiar with uh, his work too. Um, he, at the time, was teaching both a labor history course and an environmental history course, and I took both of those and had sort of the idea, you know, that he was somebody that encouraged this idea that, um, you know, that there may be like common ground between the two fields, that, that hmm. you could sort of think of an, a hybrid version of that. But in the 1990s, that was, you know, not really... Uh, apparent in in terms of the literature, I think probably one of the few people that had, had sort of advanced that notion was Andrew Hurley with his book Environmental Inequalities. But other than that, yeah. you know, we were still reading sort of the common classics, you know, uh, L. Leopold and, and Silent Spring. Um, but he but he sort of opened the door. John opened the door for for this, uh, I think, and um, and then eventually in his own work with his book Reasonable Use, he did he did do something like a blend of of uh, social history and environmental history. Um, the thing that I liked about John that really attracted to, you know, is attracting me to him um, as a student was that he he was one of the founding members of um, the 
uh, student, uh, just student for a democratic society uh, there at the University of Wisconsin-Madison hmm. uh, when he was a college student. And he also had been part of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and went down to Mississippi. And so he was part of that generation of, of uh, social activists who then themselves gravitated into history, and they sort of pioneered the new labor and new social history. And that's a that's a part of also, I think, the explanation for why his work ended up being that way. Like he was an environmental historian who got to understand uh, that we needed to have this sort of hybrid uh, and not just sort of a the standard environmental history that was coming out of, I think, some of the first uh, wave of literature after the the field was, you know, sort of officially founded in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, so John was a great person to work with for, for somebody like me who wanted not to sort of be constrained or delimited by what the literature seems to suggest with what the field was about. Um, and so then I, he also was a model for me in terms of like, well, what did I want to do, you know, mm-hmm. for, for a career? And, uh, you know, I, I really admired his, his, uh, his, his personal commitments in terms of his social activism. I liked his, his, his uh, work as a professional historian. And I thought, well, that's something that I'd like to do myself. And I loved, I loved uh, being in college and under college environment. And so and just sort of like an excuse to stay there forever, right, <laughs> is to become a professor. And um, so then I decided to go to graduate school. And uh, I went to work with Warren Van Tyne at the at the Ohio State University. Uh, he is known for his biography of John Lewis, who's the, the leader of the United Mine Workers for a good part of the 20th century. And I figured that would be a good uh, way to sort of I have a base in, in labor history, but also I had plans that I'd sort of venture uh, beyond labor history while I was there, trying to figure out different different topics, um, you know, with seminar papers. But then also in, in, in my master's thesis and my dissertation. Uh, so I actually finished a master's thesis about uh, urban environmental reform in Chicago. Um, and that summer of 1997, I decided I'd just take a break and, and go do some uh Go work for a, uh, a union, the United Food and Commercial Workers, um, which, which had a labor internship open, hmm. um, and, I, and they sent me down to Eastern Kentucky. Um, so I, I, I was born in Toledo, Ohio, but I grew up in Kentucky, um, so I was sort of familiar with the with the different social activism and, and labor unions in, in, that are based in Louisville, and uh, I had contacts with them. I'd actually worked with them before doing doing some labor organizing. So I got sent down to Eastern Kentucky, and um, there there was a grocery store worker strike that we were working on, and um, we went over to this place called Apple Shop, which is a sort of a nonprofit media uh, center that sort of kind of had its origins in the anti-poverty movements uh, of the 1960s. A lot of people that sort of stuck around in Appalachia, um, and they, they, they established uh, Apple Shop. Um, we went over there to, to use... To, to talk to them on the radio. They had a radio station to help promote the strike. And after we were done on the, the radio um, uh, gig, then I, I was I was discussing with them that I needed a dissertation topic and that I wanted to do something about labor and environmental history or, you know, blending the social uh, dimensions of you know, people's lives with uh, their experience and the relationship with, with nature, how environmental problems, you know, are part of that and, and how they engage environmental activism, but with the social dimension sort of apparent and, mm-hmm. and they almost immediately, I mean, it was like without, you know, hesitation, they said, well, well what about the movement against strip mining uh, here in Appalachia? And I had never really heard much about that. And it, I mean, it wasn't in, in the, in the, in the literature that I read in college or in, in graduate school. Um, and even growing up in Louisville, it was something, you know, I just had nobody had really talked about um, that people just sort of had forgotten, which was is interesting now that I actually, you know, Sort of paced my way through the the 
the archives and wrote a book about it. Like it was such a, it was such an important movement. And actually it was well known at the time that, that it, that it, that it did get forgotten that, you know, mm. that this was something that sort of got buried. Um, but that was a great topic to, to, to do, to test out the, this idea of having, you know, an environmental history that was informed by the, the social history uh, of the, of the region. Uh, and there's a labor history element to it too, because the mine workers themselves were a part of the opposition to strip mining. Um, and, 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 so it gave me a chance to do something very particular, right? Like it was one one particular campaign, one particular um, issue, um, and that was my first book to save the land and people. And then from there, I kind of gradually got more general. Uh, the mm-hmm. next book was Making a Living, and then the one after that was uh, People's History of Environmentalism in the United States. Uh, and then so this this one that I just um, got done with uh, the Myth of Sun and Spring uh, is is a is a sort of like building on my own research and also the work of a lot of other really great historians uh, over the last 15 or 20 years or so um, that now enabled us to tell like a new revisionist version of the origins of environmentalism. And uh, I mean, we'll get to this later, I, I guess, when we talk about what I'm going to be doing next. But I think this is my last uh, book on environmental history because I feel like I kind of said what I need have to say. And mm-hmm. I think now it's kind of, you know, there's a lot of really other great, rich work that's going on out there and and then uh, i think but i think i've sort of my work has sort of like traveled an arc that that i sort of like feel satisfied with from that very like i said very particular book to say the land of people to this very general comment comment on you know how we might rethink that origins of environmentalism um so the, the book itself though um is uh is, is something that i had not planned to write the myth of silent spring but i went to the uh, association the, the, the environmental history conference in 2015 in DC and uh, Kate Marshall from the University of California Press uh, asked me if I wanted to meet with her and talk about you know, what I was up to and and then she suggested that I write another book which I don't know that was just not what I was I was, I was already working on another one that was not environmental history which is what I'm now back to doing mm-hmm. uh, after having finished the myth of Town of Spring and um, but it, she pitched it in a way that that I. That, it, that I sort of thought about it more, and I was actually on a panel um, for to talk about how you know we need to rethink the origins of environmentalism, and um, that's why I was there at the conference. And I got home, I sort of continued to talk to Kate about it, and 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 so I ended up deciding to write the book. And but I had sort of an idea of how I'd approach it, which is not sort of the way that the book turned out, but uh, in, in in many respects, the the sort of the 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 idea of sort of centering it around, organizing it around aspects of Silent Spring and, and thinking about the, the book Silent Spring uh, came from um, the, the a lot of the help and, and comments that I got from Catherine Morse and David Stradling, who, who I like also. I think their, their work is really good and um, part of, I think, that foundational literature that's, that's allowing us to do this revisionist, this revisionist uh, you know, new narrative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so from there, that's that's how we did it. Um, <laughs> Thanks for taking us through that arc. I really appreciate that. I, I think the book, mm-hmm. I mean, the Myth of Silence Spring, really important and, and useful and accessible, also. Um, and it, it also, it must be said, has the most eye-catching title I've seen in a long time. Um, so, Rachel Carson, Silence Spring. These are these are for the most part, you know, beyond reproach in environmental circles. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And I think just this month, I think it was, that the Library of America is publishing Silent Spring in a collection of Carson's writings, um, which is an mm-hmm. event that some might see as her apotheosis into the canon of American literature. Um, mm-hmm. And we should probably be clear from the start that your book is not a hit job on Carson or an attempt to expose Silent Spring as you know full of myths or bad science or anything. Like that. You're you're not in the employee of the chemical industry. <laughs> um, right. But, <laughs> no, it, yeah, that, that's actually... It's a very it's a very important point, and it's something that I lead to in the acknowledgments. And when I talk about the book, I always make sure to begin with this with this that I mean, when Silent Spring came out, actually when it was ser- first serialized in New York, or even before the book itself was published, um, you know, the the chemical industry did go after her, and a lot of the comment, the, a lot of the way that the, the they, they pitched her criticism was to say that you know women couldn't couldn't do science that she was probably a communist that she might be a lesbian. Uh, and my book is in no way part of that. Um, since that time, no. there's been a, sort of an ongoing uh, attempt to critique the book, saying that by by uh, pointing out the problems with the use of DDT, that that subjects you know people to you know. Uh, death around the world who need DDT to control uh, malaria or other mm-hmm. uh, diseases, and I'm not I'm not also uh, trying to try to be to contribute to that literature either. And in fact, I'm really not. The, the book itself, uh, I think, has a lot of merits. Even today, it stands up well uh, for what it was meant to do, which is mm-hmm. be an expose about pesticides. What I'm trying to talk about, and the myth that I'm talking about, is what people did with the book. So it's not even really anything that Rachel Carson had to do with, because she never herself said that she started the environmental movement. <laughs> it was other people that did that. Even even when she was alive, they were doing that, and she just kind of let that go. But she never claimed that herself. So what I'm doing is talking about a story that people have have made about where American environmentalism came from by using her book, right? Coming up with this, what I call the big book origin story. Um, and so that's the myth. The book itself isn't, isn't the myth. Well, yeah. What do you think encouraged that story and why has it become so persistent? Well, it's easy for one. I mean, this is a common way for many people to explain the origins of social movements, not just environmentalism. There's, there, there are other versions of this sort of big book origin stories, um, and as I begin uh, the myth of Silent Spring, you know, I, talk, I talk about how people compared her book to uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. at the time, some people were saying started the Civil War, which is just absurd, right? I mean, there are so many <laughs> other ways in which uh, the, the abolitionist movement and all kinds of other social forces were coming um, into play that, that, that led the nation to the Civil War. And by the time that, that uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe uh, wrote Uncle Bob's Cabin. I mean, you know, the nation's sort of on the eve of that that conflict happening. It wasn't like, you know, uh, that, this, that this was the media provocation. And so, I mean, that's a good example, and it's actually instructive that that's the book that they compared the that they compared Silent Spring to when when people were talking to Rachel Carson at you know in congressional testimony hearings and things like that. William Douglas too, right? Wasn't it the Supreme Court justice? Yeah, the Supreme Court justice. I mean, E.B. White, uh, people that were reviewing her book um, in order to praise it, they were saying, mm-hmm. you know, that, that 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 that's how important this book was. Um, mm-hmm. So when you get into the, when you get into this revisionist history and, and to, to cut down this myth, um, you pull from your work and from others' works, like you're saying, um, to offer a more capacious history of environmentalism. You start way back in the first chapter in the colonial era, and, and mm-hmm. as well as in the decades around the revolution. Um, and some might immediately object to you using a 20th century word like environmentalism, or environmental mm-hmm. to describe thought and actions of those who lived two or three centuries before that. Um, so how do, mm-hmm. how do you define environmentalism, and where do you see it on display in, for instance, the towns and countrysides of New England? Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good question, and it's a good point. It's uh, one also that I think comes up when people talk about, you know, in women's history, 
when they talk about feminism, like is someone a feminist if they don't call themselves a feminist or mm-hmm. if the word yet itself hadn't been invented? Um, I think there are three problems with the, the the big book origin story of environmentalism that that that, that focuses on Sound Spring. One is is it's it's uh, an era of, of when the movement happened. So mm-hmm. um, you know the the book itself, Sound Spring was published in 1962, and as you say, like what I want to do is sort of push us back into the 19th century. Um, and that's because the, uh, one of the other rock problems with the Silent Spring explanation is that, is that, um, they're, they're not, that it doesn't, doesn't entirely, uh, account for, I think, the, the why, why the, the movement happened. And I hmm. argue that it, that it's industrialization and urbanization that comes with industrialization. And that's already going on in, uh, various parts of the country by the early 19th century. And so, like, I teach at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. And when I first came, to teach here in 2002, um, I you know was finishing the Save the Land of People book, and I was really excited about. Now I can you know get into um, thinking about uh, using New England, in particular the the city of Lowell, as as an example of how some kind of environmental consciousness or awareness of environmental problems um, uh, starting to to begin, and environmental protests starting to begin uh, at the same time, uh, parallel with. Um, the you know people's experience of moving from the countryside and exchanging agricultural labor for industrial labor and living in the city, and that's what I found. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. it was. Yeah, uh, in fact, when I started that to work on that, and I went to the archives. I people were telling me like, what else could you possibly write about Lowell, you know, and industrialization? <laughs> and because it seemed like everybody had said everything they could, you know, every different field had tried there to, to make something out of it, uh, and but no one had really done it, you know, with a with the perspective of an environmental historian, and so that I did that. And then the other thing that I want to want to do is sort of question um, how the the origin story that focuses on Silent Spring uh, doesn't doesn't necessarily get all that doesn't include all the historical actors that should be uh, part of the story. Uh, that mm-hmm. and that's sort of the question of who. Uh, and so you know, like I wanted this book to be accessible to students and to activists, um, and to try to frame uh, the 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 history that I make, the interpretation that I make from chapter to chapter with those three points in mind, sort of the, the when and the why and the who. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, the people in the 19th century don't call themselves environmentalists, uh, but they are dealing with environmental problems, water pollution, um, they're dealing with uh, eventually by the early 20th century air pollution, dealing with solid waste that is, you know, around them in cities or in other places where they're living or working. Um, they're getting exposed to hazards on the job. Um, and I'm just, I mean, maybe because they don't use the word, it doesn't, I don't know why we wouldn't just think that that's, I mean, that's what environmentalists do in the 20th century when the word is invented. So, like, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. fact that they don't use the word, it's just sort of like, I think in some ways, kind of an academic argument um, in this case. And then the protests that they're a part of, um, or the ways in which they react, or the ways in which they organize, uh, then because it's about environmental problems, I mean, I think fits in, at least in terms of trying to understand the origins of environmentalism and fits in terms of the narrative of where environmentalism comes from if in fact you know they're they're reacting to environmental problems and mm-hmm. it's not it's not it's not sort of suddenly people doing this in 1963 right after the book <laughs> published right like i mean that's just not true and i think a lot of people know this but it just you know we just haven't really put all of the piece of the, the, the puzzles of the pieces of the puzzle together until you know, we really got to this point in the literature where we have enough to draw on um, and, and people sort of realizing, like, how things are connected. But like, like I said, I mean, Andrew Hurley, 
is like, <laughs> I mean, he are, he was like really prescient, right? Like he is already doing that in, in environmental inequalities. And I think the book, you know, a lot of people loved it, but it didn't really seem to move the field. I mean, I mm-hmm. was, was just sort of waiting and watching to see, you know, how would this change the way people approach it. And we just kept getting book after book that was like, about, you know, the suburbs or mm-hmm. that said the Silent Spring started the movement or that, again, did the hagiography of some of the great environmental, you know, leaders. And, I mean, it was like, I can't take another, you know, uh, you know biography of John Muir. Like, he's just like, I'm, you know, at least one that doesn't talk about, like, what I do in the first chapter, which is, you know, how the national parks are a problem, like, in yeah, a sort of yeah. a problem to understand. And, I mean, that was, like, Ken Burns, you know, his documentary came out, and, like, what is the tagline for, like, America's Greatest Idea? Like, that's, idea, yeah, yeah. the subtitle itself is wrong, yeah. right? Like, it's just not... <laughs> so, you know, I, what I want to do is try to... Try to I was trying to do is write a book that could speak back to those... Not only the academics that were sort of doing this, um, but then other people, you know, in other media, um, newspapers, magazines, documentary film, children's literature, um, who are who are absorbing what the story that academics had told, and it still seemed to be sort of the prevailing understanding. I mean, I think that we need to. Well, hopefully, what we'll do is not just sort of you know have a conversation among ourselves as, as professional historians, but that will that this will bubble up into. Um, popular consciousness too, because as I say at the end of the book, I mean I think that having the Silent Spring origin story uh, for environmentalism hinders us in terms of the kind of environmental activism that we do now. So um, this matters more than it's more than just about trying to correct the record. It's also about you know how we what our historical consciousness is and what that historical consciousness allows us to do as activists in the present and the future. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate it. Also, when you talked about Lowell and elsewhere too, in Chicago and places where um, even even the you know post-war romanticism, post-war environmentalism has this kind of romantic shade to it, right? Kind of and drawing back to to Thoreau and everyone in, in Concord there, you found you know Lowell Mill girls who are writing in just the same way at the same time about kind of the divine, yeah, right, you know, investment in nature. So even that, it's not just about oh, we miss public health or we miss occupational health. It's also no, they were just miss these people. Yeah, and 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 they then just people just didn't pay any attention to them, right? Because they're women and because they're workers. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they are reading, um, like you know, the they are reading the transcendental uh, writers, and sometimes there's public lectures like Emerson comes to Lowell, but they're kind of inventing a working class romanticism, and I don't think they really got credit for that. And what's interesting is they have a real experience with industrialization and urbanization, whereas the the transcendentalists have like this imaginary experience. Like, I don't know, you know, for people that have never been to Concord uh, and Lowell, like those are, there's, you know, 18 miles away from each other, maybe um, down, you know, the Concord River starts in Concord and it ends in Lowell at Hmm. where it meets the Merrimack River. Those are two different, those are two different like worlds. And Mm -hmm. the transcendentalists are in one world and the workers, the mill girls are in the other. And in fact, when we, we bring teachers to do a professional development uh, workshops on industrialization, we take them to Concord and we bring them to Lowell and we do this. We have them read the transcendentalists and read the, the mill girls writings. And it's very interesting to have them compare the two. Um, And, you know, I mean, I think it's, well, I mean, it doesn't. It, there's still a way in which I think you need to sort of think about well, what is the, how how are the Milgros themselves sort of reimagining nature? Because it's not necessarily like the nature writing they're doing is necessarily like very, uh, 
you know, it's, it's a poetic, it's romantic too, but, mm-hmm. um, but, but it's still worthwhile. And then later, you know, what we, we do when we do the workshop, is we talk about how the experience that people like the workers are having leads to Massachusetts being a pioneer in terms of water pollution control. Uh, they're the first state to have a state board of health, and that's led by a very radical uh, Henry Ingersoll Bowditch, and he uh, articulates an argument that people should have the right to um, be, you know, um, have a right to be healthy and not have to deal with uh, water pollution and uh, basing it on this, the natural rights uh, sort of tradition that comes from the revolution. Um, and then, and then the, and then the state passed the water pollution control law in 1878, but it made three exceptions that, that are interesting. The Merrimack river, the Con- Connecticut river, and the part of the Concord that went through Lowell as it, as it goes under the Long hmm. Street bridge. So, you know, I mean, there's a story there and that's, that's, you know, part of the what I'm trying to do when I when I go back into the 19th century and talk about the origins of environmentalism in New England um, much earlier than 1962, but but it's definitely it's not a linear not a linear narrative. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, later in the chapter, you you as you said earlier, you go on to talk about conservation at the federal level and state level, um, forest and wildlife resources and things like that. Um, and you point out, as others have, that there are victims to these projects. They weren't necessarily the best idea. America's had, um, but uh, but I think you even go beyond this to propose that those victims had their own ethic that is worthy of being termed environmental, and they practiced you know, this moral ecology. Can you talk about mm-hmm. that a bit for us? Well, that's that I cannot take credit for that. That is from <laughs> crime. That's from Crimes Against Nature, which is a book I oh, love. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. and um, that's uh, just. I mean, as I said, I um, this book, The Myth of Sound Spring, is based on, on my own research, but. It's also based on a lot of other good work that people are doing, including that mm-hmm. book. And, um, yeah, so common people, you know, they have their own ways of engaging nature, maybe not always um, following all the ecological principles that we figure out later in the 20th or 21st century. Um, but when the first preservation and conservation um, efforts, uh, you know, kind of begin to find their way into state law or federal law or policy, at, at least, uh, that that can be imposed on on them, and really without thinking about them or asking you know them to be part of sort of uh, creating um, different engagement, different relationship with nature, and usually in the interest of elite. So you know, like the first fish commissions don't they don't uh, you know try to protect fish or or um, set up fish hatcheries so that people have more of the fish that they want to fish for because they want to eat them. They mm-hmm. they create fish hatcheries to to raise fish that that gentlemen sportsmen want, right? When they go up right. to the Adirondacks or go somewhere around New England and, and, and want to go trout fishing. Um and, you know, I mean that's that's an ongoing thing through the twentieth century. And it's part of the explanation for to some extent the resistance of common ordinary working class people to um environmental regulations when that when that does appear, when it when it does get manifested um like that's that's a there's a legacy still today in new england and other parts of the country of you know of, of people being opposed but not necessarily being willing to be open-minded about environmental mm-hmm. uh regulations because because of that long 150 years uh of you know things like this happening before um and then not and they're not and it not being a democratic process right and so that's i think we need to sort of like undo our our um the way that we've the way that we sort of crowned, you know, people like like John Muir and and uh, uh, and just I mean, and even just sort of like uh, not really approaching all, all of that with a critical perspective. 
Yeah, yeah. And uh, you go on in the next chapter to survey the progressive era and New Deal in the North. Um, and here I think you really start to make obvious that the problems with our dominant narrative of environmentalism are not just that it doesn't start early enough um, and or include all the people it should, but that it, um, it really defines environmental problems too narrowly themselves. Um, and so how are progressives and radicals in this chapter you're talking about in the early 20th century conceiving of both the problems, the environmental problems as they see them, and also the causes for them differently? than mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I think that was also true in, in New England among the, the people like Henry Ingersoll Bowditch. Bowditch was a, a radical who was, you know, he believed that the problem was, were a corporation. And then when hmm, he, right, you know, right. as he pushed that, you know, to, you know, trying to say that corporations shouldn't be able to dump stuff into the rivers that were making people sick. And they, they managed to get the governor to, to uh, they actually merged the board of health with the board of lunacy. And so then um, that basically took him out of uh, the ability to sort of uh, orchestrate um, trying to expand state responsibility for uh, controlling uh, pollution. But uh, yeah, into the, even into the 20th century, the people that are involved in, in, in uh, dealing with environmental problems, whether it's in the community, in the neighborhoods, or in the workplace, um, they often have, at the same time, a, a pretty good understanding of how that's tied to their economic exploitation, how it's tied to economic inequality, that, that environmental problems aren't contained. They're not just environmental problems. They're, mm-hmm. they're, that they're connected, and that these are also part of but You know, it would be like you said at the, be- the beginning, you know, they don't call themselves environmentalists. Like, I often wanted to try to go back and like ask some of these people, like, did you think of these as environmental problems or like as labor problems? Like, did they think of them distinctly or did they think of environmental problems as labor problems, you know, or did they think of them as community problems? Um, Which would maybe be an argument against saying that they're environmentalists, but it also would be an argument against this idea that you can study environmental problems and what people do about them with his blinder on saying they have to be calling them environmental in order for mm-hmm. it to be part of the story, right? Like that's a problem. That's a that's not a um that isn't gonna give you a very good understanding of what was going on in the past, right? To to approach it that way. Uh and then race and ethnicity are, are part of that too, as um Colin Fisher points out in, in his book Urban Green and then and I talk about sort of some of what he what he uh what he covers in his book in, in that second chapter. Um, you know, the people that are themselves like moving to Chicago, becoming industrial workers, they also want to have some kind of you know, respite from their work or they want to get out of their neighborhoods that are dirty and hot. And they go to the lake, they go to uh, parks, they go to even state forest reserves. Um, and they do it as as members of particular communities, as workers, because their union has a place to go, or they do it as African-Americans. They go to a place where they don't have to deal with, you know, white racism um, and, and that, that, I love that about his book too, like the way in which he says, you, know, you can't, you can't disentangle this. Like, this is how people understood their experience with nature. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, then you end that chapter at, um, of all places, a summer camp in Port Huron, Michigan, um, where several mm-hmm. of your threads kind of come together. Could you mm-hmm. tell us a little about that place and, and suggest how the history of environmentalism looks different? For instance, if we, if we look out from Port Huron. Mm-hmm. Well, actually I, I decided to write my second book, Making a Living, because um, so my my uh, grandfather was a member of the United Auto Workers. He worked at Dana Auto Parts in Toledo, Ohio. And so hmm. all the kids in the family, my father included, uh, went to Sand Lake, which was a camp run by the United Auto Workers, a summer camp. And they also had a summer camp um, program at Port Huron. The Port Huron, like, 
uh, space was open not just to kids, but that was one thing to do with it. It was also meant for people to be able to come, you know, from the union and have meetings there. Uh, and then when students at the University of Michigan and, and Wisconsin and other universities decided to have the founding meeting for the students uh, for Democratic Society in 1962, uh, because some of those people actually also had family members who were part of the UAW, that, that's how they got to use the Port Huron camp um, to write the um, the Port Huron Statement, what became known as the Port Huron Statement. So, you know, in that place, which the UAW had sort of intended for, you know, people to go out and, and experience sort of nature um, in a way, um, they, they're they bringing kids, uh, like people in my family, um, to also learn about how to be members of a democratic society. Like, so the kids, you know, the program that they have, or, you know, you go, you can go horseback riding, or you go to the beach, or you go on hikes, but you also learn about how to, you know, um, uh, you know, be like effective members of, 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 a, of a democracy, you know, teaching them various principles about, you know, equality and why, why, you know, labor unions were important, um, things like how to write, how to be a public speaker. Um, and so that wasn't like, you didn't just go out and escape from society. Mm-hmm. In fact, you went out there in order to be Become more effective member of society, and then when the, the college students went and did that, that wasn't like an odd thing, right? That was already something <laughs> they've been doing at the summer camp for, for uh, you know, a few few years. So um, that camp is is an important part of the vision of Walter Ruther and Olga Madar and other people that were part of the United Auto Workers leadership because they they. Uh, you know, had this idea that the UAW would not only represent their work, their their membership in terms of their, you know, interest in trying to raise wages or reduce hours or improve working conditions, um, but also in terms of, um, you know, a, a social unionism that that made a union, um, you know, an important part of trying to deal with racial inequality and fighting. Uh, helping people who are fighting against segregation and trying to get um, blacks the right to vote again in the South, uh, and and even including also environmental issues. Um, Walter Ruther was very much uh, an advocate for for trying to use the infrastructure and resources of the UAW to um, deal with water pollution as well as air pollution. And, and, and ironically, um, you know, for many people, right, the UAW was sort of among the most important of uh, institutions in terms of trying to, to get state as well as federal um, legislation to, to control pollution, both water pollution and air pollution. And that's actually true in a lot of other cases. The union unions, you would think, supposedly wouldn't be environmentally minded um, because we have this idea that, you know, that the ones that the represent members that do things or make things that are the most harmful to environment would be the least likely. Um, it's mm-hmm. the UAW, it's the United Mine Workers, it's the Oil Chemical and Atomic Workers Union, those unions, the United Steel Workers, they're the ones who are the pioneers in terms of labor environmentalism. And in, in many ways, you could argue, I do in the book, that in fact, they're pioneering environmentalism, you know, as a movement, like that it's labor unions and workers and their leadership that are that are the, the, the earliest to voice concerns and to do things to try to bring about some kind of regulatory um, you know, uh, redress of the, the problems that they're, that they're facing. Yeah. Yeah. And then that really, you go on to explore that more in the third chapter, um, where you look at the post-war environmental movement, um, which we often, you know, it's common to think of this as, as, as that mainstream environmentalism after World War II as being at odds with both the black freedom struggle and the labor movement, or at least in tension with them. Um, mm-hmm. but you, you argue pretty powerfully. I mean, certainly the whole, the whole narrative you're sketching does this, but in that chapter too, that, that, uh, 
and that really that's the view from the other side of the Reagan revolution, basically, that we, we, we kind of see this idea that, that workers, working people, poor people must choose between jobs and a clean environment um, as, something yeah. that's, you know, as, as an ideology that was constructed or an argument that's constructed by um, Reagan era conservatives and, and sort of became sort of seen as, as fact. Um, there were there, but I should say there were tensions, right? There were absolutely tensions um, mm-hmm. with those, those activist groups. Um, so maybe could you, could you help us kind of maybe take a couple of these and help us see kind of what was what, what, where, where those alliances were strongest and maybe where also there were some 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 tensions that ended up kind of being exploited. Well, I think this is actually this is one of the ways in which I do in which I am a critic of Silent Spring. Um, you know, the right. book is supposed to be a, an expose of pesticides. But there are only a few lines that talk about farm workers, and then, and then yeah. when when Rachel Carson does talk about farm workers, uh, it's usually part of like a sentence that she's talking about, you know, people that are spraying pesticides from planes and field hands and farmers or something like that. And or she'll talk about, you know, I think in one case she talked about some some uh, farm workers who were exposed to a particular pesticide uh, in, an, in an orange grove, and 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 that's all. Like it's like mm-hmm. you think I mean they should actually be at the center of that book. They should dominate that book, and they don't. And it's because she just wasn't thinking in terms of class and race. She was thinking about you know these harmful pesticides. We need to do something about them. There are other options, but she wasn't thinking about well how come how come they could be used? How come people like farm workers you know are out there using them? What it what kind of power do growers have that they can make right. that people actually have to apply them? Um, and and then unfortunately, and she didn't mean to do this, but um, there's there's some evidence that uh, the criticism that she leveled at the pesticide industry had made made some growers switch from um, pesticides that were less persistent, so that they would not end up you know on 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 produce when they made it to the grocery, and to you know you know it would be safer for consumers, and then if if the government agency was sort of trying to, to monitor that, that they would see that there was less pesticide on the on the product. But that are actually, mm-hmm. those pesticides that they switched to are more acute in terms of an initial application. So that made mm-hmm. farm workers sicker, right? And, they, and so that just was, you know, again, not something that she intended to do. But the story of farm workers um, is left out of Silent Spring. And then this the way in which um, we think about the origin story is, is, is one that it only, I mean, there have been some, I think, some really good articles and books about the farm workers by environmentalists, um, but we haven't really, I think, fully incorporated or, or reckoned with what it would mean to, to bring them into our or, the origin story, right, and to talk about how they're part of the rise in environmental movement. And one of the things that, that we'd have to confront if we did is that environmental groups actually weren't always very open to working with the United Farm Workers, right? Um, it, the UFW had to struggle to get anybody from the mainstream environmental groups to help them. That was not true, of course, of other labor unions who saw that what they were doing was something that, that you know, they were their allies. Um, and there are other cases like that where environmental groups like the Sierra Club or the Environmental um, Defense Fund or the Environmental Policy um, Center, that they actually um, undermine and, and, and very intentionally undermine grassroots um, activism that's going on, like the the movement against strip mining in Appalachia. The people that were doing that in Kentucky, West Virginia, and other states in, in southern Appalachia were arguing by the late 60s and early 70s for a ban on strip mining. And they and they were getting close to getting uh, enough signatures on a bill to do that at the federal level um, in the very early 1970s. Uh, and the Sierra Club uh, representative who was... Um, sort of in charge of dealing with that in Congress. And, and uh, Louise Dunlap was part of the EPC. 
um, they were colluding behind the scenes to tell members of Congress, uh, you know, you don't really need to ban this. We will work out a compromise. And um, that then made it very difficult for the grassroots activists to continue to push the uh, abolition bill forward. And as a result, in 1977, the bill that Congress finally passed um, was really devastating for um, the coal fields of Appalachia, for the people living there, because uh, it basically legalized the destruction of of, uh, of the region. Um, and it allows for mountaintop removal, um, which is now mm-hmm. the new way of strip mining that's really just horrendous. Um, that's partly, it's not only because of the mainstream environmental groups, but they play a role in making that happen um, by by making it harder for the grassroots activists to um, continue to push uh, their their agenda forward, and they and they did it because they were like career environmentalists, and they just had they had their own interest in mind, um, along with industry, along with other things that were going on. But um, you know, th- these are the stories I think that we need to be remembering in order to understand why we're in the place we're in in the 1990s or the 21st century, um, with workers environmentalists environmentalists seemingly at different you know at odds. And companies and corporations being able to divide them by this by this rhetoric of jobs versus the environment like that that doesn't that doesn't work because it's inherently logical. It works because there's a history of of um, and, and well, it's an intended also um, because of a history of labor environmentalism that to some extent was thwarted by environmentalists themselves, not not being really good allies for labor. People always say, well, why don't workers come? you know, and understand environmental problems are really important and they should, you know, come along and, and, and be on board. Well, it can work the other way around, right? Why don't environmentalists create, the, uh, you know, conditions in which it's easier for workers to do that, right? As, as it was in the 1950s, 60s, and some parts of the 1970s. Um, you know, in Appalachia, for instance, we need a just transition bill. If you want, you know, people who are mine workers to, um, to easily sort of move from being coal miners to something else, then you know we create we create a federal program in which they get retrained to make wind turbine blades or something mm-hmm. like that, right? And they, and they're members of the, and the United Mine Workers becomes a wind turbine labor union instead of a coal mine workers union. I mean, coal is going away anyway, so the fact that environmentalists aren't pushing that harder is, in some extent, sort of um, telling about about how they themselves have sort of their own blinders and need to and need to think um, about what this history might mean for the way that they re that they refocus the movement. <laughs> I wonder if you noticed um, over your career teaching that the students that come into your classes has, has, has their kind of environmental consciousness been changing? And, and do you feel like they are as kind of swept up in this kind of mythic thinking about, about a kind of limited scope of environmental problems and, and, a, and an unnuanced understanding of the causes of them um, as ever, or do you think that it's changing at all? Um, it's not changing much. When I teach them yeah. on a history course, they have, I mean, they've absorbed a lot of this. Um, it's, it's interesting, right? Like a lot of people know these myths somehow. And it's, I mean, well, like I said, I mean, there are a lot of children's books that say, right, for Carson's Silent Spring Started Movement. So, you know, the things like that, that people hear this and then they walk into the classroom with it. And it's hard to undo those myths because probably because mm-hmm. they're, they're easier, right? Like when I start talking, as I've been talking for an hour, like this is too complicated, right? Like people yeah, would rather, yeah. like, no, I would rather not. I mean, my, my friends joke that I should have a YouTube channel called Chad Ruins History because, um, you know, and they start talking, no, 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 don't, don't tell us the story, the real story. Just we want to believe, you know, the, the myth and because it's so much easier. But um, my students are all very interested in, in climate change. They know that this is, could be the end of their, uh, the world as they know it for them uh, and their generation. And uh, after the election in November of 2016, I mean, the next 
couple of days, I had students in my classes who were in tears and, and some of yeah. them, they were, they were upset about what this would mean in terms of um, the, the progress that they thought they were beginning to make in terms of a movement to, to, to deal with climate change um, and how this is going to set them back, including with Pruitt being put in charge of the EPA, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Um, and, you know, it'll be interesting. I'm, I'm interested as also as an historian, um, like I said, you know, how the field's going to evolve. Because I, I just, I think there's some, like I said, there's really great people working on things like like Colin and Carl, people that uh, um, Elizabeth Blum. Um, but I'm not sure that, like, I just feel like that there's a way in which the field sort of just politely has ignored us, you know, and mm-hmm. continued on and we still get, the, you know, the same story. Um, it, that's very different from other fields that I had some knowledge about. Like when I was in graduate school, I you know, did a minor field of women's history. And I felt like they were constantly, like historians are a part of that field, constantly arguing with one another and evolving and changing the field. Right. And I just don't mm-hmm. see that happening with environmental history as a field. Like, I mean, I, I think it probably is to some extent with some particular issues like, you know, bison on the plains or something, but, but it, like sure. in a general way, I don't know if we really are, if we evolve as fast, if, we're, if our debates are sort of, if they're even as, like happening as as as, um, as fervently, and if if they're you know if they're they're moving people to sort of change their their interpretations. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, before we say goodbye, I, I uh, you teased your upcoming your, your the next project your next book project already. Could you tell us more about that? We'd love to hear. Yeah. So except it's not environmental history. So ah, I mean that's what you right. said. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean I mean I've always been interested in in. Um, you know, how race matters in American life. And so, uh, mm-hmm. growing up in Kentucky, uh, you know, I, you know, had a sense of, you know, how race works in the South. And, you know, as an historian, I've read a lot about, you know, uh, race in American, American history and the civil rights movement. Um, but I'm very interested in this idea of how race matters in the North. And because a lot, I mean, a lot of times I think people sort of think of uh, racism and segregation, um, mm-hmm as a Southern phenomenon. And so I decided to write a book about racial exclusion in Minnesota, uh, looking at the huh. history of racial exclusion from the 19th to the 20th century. There as how, how whites keep African-Americans out of their communities, their neighborhoods, their suburbs, even whole towns. Um, and doing it in, in Minnesota, because of course many people think, I mean, actually when I tell people what, you know, that I'm writing this book, they say, well, why Minnesota? And that's actually why I'm writing it because, <laughs> That's often the question people ask, right? Because you think of it as so far north, therefore it's sort of away from the geographic center of, of racial problems in America. And it has a reputation of being somewhat progressive. Like, you know, it's the place where Hubert Humphrey comes from. It's the place where you know, Walter Mondale comes from. But, um, but and yet when you look at its history, it's very similar to other parts of the country. So what I'm trying to do is talk about race as a thing that, that matters for us in terms of a national um Sort of like the American identity and a, and a national narrative, and not just a regional narrative. Not something that that you know, maybe there's racism in the North, but it's certainly very different from the South. And actually, what I'm sort of finding is that it's not so different. It just it maybe has different variations in the way that it gets manifested, but that, that there's a common story for us as as Americans. That's fascinating. I really appreciate that. Well, I want to uh, thank you so much for your time, Chad, and I hope everyone goes out and gets the Myth of Silent Spring and is on the lookout for, for the next one. Okay, thank you, Brian.